Rubber ducky, you're the one. You make shower time so much fun. Rubber ducky, I'm terribly fond of you. I do t- <laughs> oh, oh, Cole. Oh, it's just you. Come on, Jeff, get a move on. The show's starting. What? What are you talking about? What show? You know, screen cleaning's doing the special Alfred Hitchcock themed one. Oh, oh you're right, right. Okay, let me uh, let me just grab a towel and I'll be right out. Well, haven't you heard, Jeff? There are no clean towels. Welcome to Screen Cleaning, and I guess today it should be called Scream Cleaning because that was a terrifying moment when I got out of the shower. There was no clean towel for me. And I'm joined here today by Mickey Randall. Mickey, how are you doing today? Oh, I am doing great today. Really? Good morning, yes. uh, You don't seem to be as scared as I was just a moment ago. That's Hmm. good. It is good. So, Cole is here, which is another scary thought, but we're going to soldier on, we're going to have a great show, and just as we teased there, this is going to be our Alfred Hitchcock show. We're going to be talking about the life, well, mostly the career of Alfred Hitchcock, (laughs) and why he was so good at what he did. If you haven't seen an Alfred Hitchcock movie yet, what is wrong with you? Right? What's your favorite Alfred Hitchcock movie? Oh, that's such a hard question. I'm going to say Psycho right now, but I also love... Hmm. Dial in for murder. I don't want to say whether or not I agree with you because coming up, you're going to hear my five top favorite Alfred Hitchcock movies. But uh, one thing I want to mention is we've talked about this, we've teased it for the last couple of weeks, but we are going to be having a scary movie bracket. And whoever fills out the winning bracket is going to win a big prize. And I wish I could tell you how to figure or how to fill it out. We do have an, a new email address for screen cleaning. We just need to figure out where to post it in a way that you can access the bracket. So look forward to that. We should have it up by next week. Um, are you, have you been seeing any movies in the theater this Halloween? Are there any scary movies that you're interested in? So I might go and see the Halloween remake. Okay. We'll see. A remake sequel. I actually went and saw The House with a Clock in Its Walls, <gasps> which was, it's definitely for kids. Okay. But it's a little, there's some spooky parts, so I would say. So I actually wanted to talk about The House with a Clock in Its Walls, because that is one that... You know, I turned to my six-year-old and I said, do you want to see that? And so she's she's continued to say, yeah, I want to see that. Until recently when she said, I've decided I don't want to see that anymore. <laughs> and I'm glad she said that because I want to talk about two family films that are in the theaters now that you can go see. But I want to uh, talk about whether or not they're too scary. That was the big question for me going in. Is this going to be too scary for my four-year-old and six-year-old? Now... Speaking uh, of the house with a clock in its walls, I normally don't begin a review with a complaint, but here goes. Okay. To be fair, though, this is a complaint about kids' movies in general. Why do all of these kids' movies have to feature an orphan in them? It's all about right. orphans, right? <laughs> totally. It's, it's something that my daughter is sensitive to, and it's one of the initial reasons I decided not to take her to see this. Mm-hmm. However, the main reason was I had heard that this film was too scary for young audiences, and boy, is it ever, in my opinion. 
So the story is about young Louis Barnevelt, who's the orphan in question here, who goes to live with his estranged Uncle Jonathan, played by Jack Black. Jack Black's doing very well this Halloween, and we'll, we'll tell you why here in just a second. He's an odd duck who lives in a big, spooky house filled with a myriad of ticking clocks, exotic collections, as well as stained glass windows and other household items that Lewis swears he can see moving in his periphery. But all-you-can-eat cookies and late-night poker games with neighbor Florence, played by Kate Blanchett, help take his mind off the strange goings-on. It's only after a couple of creepy late-night encounters that Lewis learns the truth of what's really going on. His uncle is a warlock... Or a boy witch, as as young Lewis is able to define. And neighbor Florence is a semi-retired witch. And now that the black cat's out of the bag, see what I did there? <laughs> Uncle Jonathan can start teaching his nephew magic and hopefully get some extra help locating the mysterious ticking clock hidden somewhere in the house's walls. <laughs> So I kept scratching my head when I was watching this. I was wondering, how is this movie PG? It's probably okay for 10-year-olds, but more than likely it will be too scary for anybody under 12. That's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. There were some genuinely creepy, disturbing moments in this film. some jump scares. It was so surprising to me. Right. So, however, I would recommend seeing it purely for the rare opportunity of seeing a PG-rated Eli Roth film. Uh, because up until now, Mr. Roth has only played in the goriest of sandboxes, but I enjoyed the film enough to hope that he makes more trips to the other side of the playground. See what I did there? I did. I okay. love it. I love it. <laughs> okay. Which leads us to the other Jack Black Halloween film that's out. So I was a huge fan of the Goosebumps books when mm-hmm. I was growing up. I don't know if you read any yeah, of them, I read Mickey. A few. Uh, They're by R.L. Stein, and when the first film was released back in 2015, I was scrambling for a way to uh, have an excuse for me to see this kid's movie, right? You can't really – if you're 30-something, you can't just want to see this kid's movie, right? (laughs) So the, the, the unfortunate thing was, though, that my kids were and probably still are too young for that movie. And there was no way my wife was going to watch it. So I did what most other fathers in my predicament would do. I watched it on my phone in my car. Mm. Please don't judge me. Never. And so with the release of Goosebumps 2, Haunted Halloween, I found myself in a similar predicament. However, this time I was able to hide behind the excuse, I mean, the responsibility of needing to review it for screen cleaning. I will admit... uh, I went into this film with really low expectations. The trailers made it look like it was going to be a made-for-TV movie released Mm -hmm. in the theaters. The plot looked almost identical to the first film's plot, and it didn't feature any of the same characters from the first film, like Jack Black. No Amy Ryan. I love Amy Ryan. So imagine my surprise when I realized the moment, probably about 20 minutes into the film, that I was actually enjoying this movie. Mm. So the film's plot is basically the same as the first one. Uh, The creepy characters from an unfinished work by R.L. Stein are brought to life by the same creepy Night of the Living Dummy dummy, whose name is Slappy, and he's from the first Goosebumps uh, movie as well as the really popular Goosebumps novels. Slappy is heck-bent on creating a family of monsters to terrorize the poor citizens of Wardenclyffe and possibly the world. 
Yeah. So scary. So I will, uh, speaking of the plot, I did feel like it was a little more linear than the plot of the house with a clock in its walls. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even if all the pieces didn't quite fit together, there's an abandoned plot device involving, you know, this fledgling junk collection business that these two boys have. And uh, the Jack Black cameo that comes in toward the end of the film really serves no purpose at all. Uh, then maybe to just connect the two films together. Mm. I want to say, though, like Halloween Candy, the film was enjoyable in the moment. Mm. And after binging on said Halloween Candy, there was a brief moment of reflection. Do I regret seeing this film? And the answer is no, I don't. That's the best feeling. Right. So I actually look forward to the day when my kids are old enough for me to, I I mean, when I'm old enough to read with them (laughs) the Goosebumps series and for all of us to enjoy these two spooky films together. Mm -hmm. However, uh, my four-year-old and even six-year-old are probably a little too young for that to happen this Halloween. Someday. Right. So until then, I'll just have to enjoy these movies and books alone in my car or in another safe place (laughs) where I won't be judged. Anyway, uh, when we return, we're going to be speaking with a BYU professor about the career of Alfred Hitchcock. But first, here is a review of one of the films that we are not going to be able to squeeze onto the scary movie bracket this year. One of my favorite scary movies, and one that we'll talk about in more detail later this month, involves a monster that lives and attacks people under the sea, under the sea. Sorry about that. I wanted to include the actual song, but I also didn't want to get sued. Now, if you're worried about being eaten alive by a great white shark, just don't go in the water. Simple, right? Well, the genius of another one of my favorite scary movies is that its monster resides underground. I feel the earth move under my feet. There's a killer on the loose! Well, the heroes of this film spend 90 minutes trying to do just that thing. The semi-obscure 1990 film Tremors... Tremors. ...takes place in the fictitious desert community of Perfection, Nevada where the 14 people who live there discover underground creatures who snatch up their victims using their giant snake-like tentacles. They're coming! Tremors has everything a 10-year-old boy could want in a film. Monster guts, explosions... Oh yeah, and Kevin Bacon, who, according to comedian and hungry man Jim Gaffigan, is all you really need in a film. Who's in this movie? Kevin Bacon? Sounds good. But despite Kevin Bacon's presence, the movie's best moment comes from the trigger-happy odd couple of Family Ties' Michael Gross and country singer Reba McIntyre, heard here defending themselves from the monsters they call Graboids. We don't see anything, Val. Bert, they're under the ground. They're under the ground. Big monsters underground. Now get out. Hurry. into the wrong rec room, didn't she? This film is practically a love letter to the campy creature features of the 50s. But unlike many of those films, we're laughing with the characters, not at them. This is a very funny movie that's even a bit scary at times. 
And while it wasn't a huge hit at the box office, the high home video sales seemed to justify four sequels, as well as a TV series. Now this valley is just one long smorgasbord. I'll be back next week with two more of my favorite scary movie favorites. Until then, be careful, because your next step may be your last. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. As we teased before the break, we're going to be discussing the career of Alfred Hitchcock, and many people consider him to be the master of suspense. And today we have Professor Kimball Jensen, a professor of media arts at Brigham Young University. And uh, she's also interested in critical race theory, ethnic studies, digital media. I thought this was interesting. She's presented research on cosplay and received the James Weaver Graduate Essay Prize for her article on Harry Potter fandom. Kimball, welcome to Screen Cleaning. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I mentioned in the intro that a lot of people consider him to be the master of suspense. And aside from the fact that he did such a great job of leaving so much to the imagination, why else do you think that's an appropriate title for Alfred Hitchcock? Well, I think just the topics that he delved in and a lot of other filmmakers. I mean, there's horror and mystery and thriller, and and he's making films at a time when there's film noir, um, sort of in the post-World War II era, where there's a lot of interest in things like... uh, moral ambiguity, like who's a hero and who's a villain. Right. And then yeah. there's also this um this interest in things like psychology and the unconscious and uh, you know, are we responsible for our actions? Um, what are the things that are uh making us do things or what kind of sort of raw emotional uh connections can we tap into um in sort of this new and interesting world, this post-World War II world, where there's a lot of sort of conventions that were shattered by, you know, years of war and all that kind of stuff. I think you've touched upon something that really highlights the fact that he's not just considered the master of suspense, but he was a master filmmaker because his films never seemed to be just one thing. You know, it never seemed to be just a scary movie or a suspenseful movie. There's so much emotion, so much humanity in his films that, you know, his films have the ability to bring out a, a myriad of emotions from his viewers. And that takes talent. Yeah. So Hitchcock is, yeah, not just the master of suspense or, or, or whatever you want to call him, but he is a master filmmaker. And one, that's because Hitchcock was very conscious of his film practice, if you will. He he was very in tune with, okay, in filmmaking, what are the things that you do to be a good filmmaker? How does film create meaning when you watch it? And Hitchcock has these great interviews, and he because he had such a long career and because um, people liked him so much, he has a lot of interviews where he talks about, you know, this is how film works, right? Yeah. When I, when I cut to different scenes and I put things together, the images coming together create these meanings. Um, that we're going to use in film. Um, And the other idea that uh, Hitchcock really got this huge boost in his reputation when all these uh, very uh, famous French critics um, became very interested in him. him. And so especially a famous uh, French filmmaker, Francois Truffaut, did this whole series of interviews with Hitchcock because Hitchcock was one of his favorites. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're trying to go back and reclaim this idea that filmmaking is an art. Right. Yeah. As a filmmaker, you can be an artist and you can have a style. Right. And that's kind of this 
um, idea that we understand very naturally today because it's so common that we understand that filmmakers are artists when that wasn't really a big thing before then. So why is it that you think we're still talking about Alfred Hitchcock today? Because you mentioned, you know, there was that recent uh, documentary Hitchcock uh, Truffaut, I think was the name of it. Mm -hmm. And then there's another one that's dedicated entirely to the shower scene (laughs) of the film Psycho. So clearly, he's still relevant today. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, just he he's a very skilled and masterful filmmaker. Mm -hmm. He's purposeful in what he does. He understands the filmmaking process and he's able to put things together in a way uh, that connect with individuals both because the stories are compelling, the characters are compelling, and just the visuals of his films are very, very well composed as if you're a painter, right, composing a painting. Uh, Hitchcock treated film in the same way. Um, And Hitchcock was very um, well known for being very meticulous in his planning as well. So Hitchcock would sit down and storyboard out and plan things out very meticulously. And he had a very clear vision and very clear expectations of what he wanted, which made him a great filmmaker, made him demanding as a director. And he was kind of a director-producer as well. He took on a lot of other sort of roles besides just, you know, working with his actors. He was very careful, very detail-oriented from picking out the clothes for a lot of his uh, female stars, Yeah, um, being very specific about the colors um, and the camera angles and all these different things. And there's some sort of film legend, I don't know if that's what you want to call it, but the idea that Hitchcock knew that working with studios, um, the studios were kind of famous for uh, re-editing or cutting down or mm-hmm. trying to f- make you do things that were more in the interest of the studio rather than the director. Sure. And so Hitchcock was uh, known for being very meticulous because, one, he had a very clear vision, but also people have said that he was very meticulous because he wanted to make a film a certain way. And if he planned very carefully, then the studio couldn't re-edit his films any other way than the way that he had already planned. Yeah. You know, you don't have to look very far to see the influence that he has had on the filmmakers of today. A lot of films that will come out will be described as Hitchcockian. You yeah. know, they're they're very – it would be a film that Alfred Hitchcock would make today. So I thought we could spend a minute or two here talking about – uh, filmmakers that you feel like have been influenced by Alfred Hitchcock, by the work of Alfred Hitchcock, or maybe what films are out today that might look like one that Alfred Hitchcock himself would have made? Yeah, I was thinking about this um, this week, and I think probably the last time that I thought, oh, this filmmaker is trying to channel Alfred Hitchcock okay. is in a lot of the work of M. Night Shyamalan. Yes. I think he definitely is like, I'm trying to channel Alfred Hitchcock, maybe unsuccessfully in certain circumstances. Especially his earlier films. Especially his earlier films. I think if you watch Signs, it is such a Hitchcockian Mm -hmm. film. I mean, there's even elements where, um, you know, there's this scene in Signs where they're trapped in their house and they board up the windows and you can hear things on the outside of the house, but you can't see things. Exactly. And I think that's very Hitchcockian where you can hear, but you can't see. Yeah. Or there's this very uh, ambiguous space about what's happening and we don't know. We don't know what's out there. Yeah. And that's what adds to the fear and the suspense. I think one for me, and you mentioned obviously M. Night Shyamalan is one that a lot of people would associate with Alfred Hitchcock, and that's probably what he's going for. Um, But a film that just came to mind when you were talking about that was a film uh, by a gentleman that usually wouldn't necessarily be associated with Alfred Hitchcock, and it's uh, Frank Darabont. 
who directed the film The Mist. Oh, yeah. Which is interesting because on the surface, it seems like it's just kind of a creature feature. But the real terror from that movie, and there are scenes where, you know, this mist has overtaken this town and you have this group of people that's trapped in this grocery store and you really can't see a whole lot of this creature that is terrorizing this town in this mist. What's really terrorizing is what's going on inside the grocery store as people start to turn on each other and as religious zealots start to convert people to their cause and their way of thinking. Really kind of creepy. Um, so that would be a film I would think would be typical of, of Alfred Hitchcock. Something like that, again, where things are left to the imagination or what people are capable of doing maybe is more terrifying than what a monster could do to you. Right. You know? I think Hitchcock would definitely agree that people are far more frightening than monsters. Yeah. Because it's the the uh, the the id, I guess, the unknown of what people are capable of. And that's definitely a Hitchcockian sort of idea. Yeah. I would also kind of go out on a little bit of a limb and say that uh, the Coen brothers definitely yeah, have I a Hitchcock feel to some of their films. And I think part of that is... While Hitchcock is known as the master of suspense, Hitchcock is also has these this uh, pantheon of very quirky and weird characters and these elements of dark humor that run throughout his films. And I think the Coen brothers have a similar, maybe amped up a little bit. Oh, yeah. But this pantheon of quirky, strange characters in these uh, dark humor situations where, yeah, people are sort of unknown quantities and... And we're not sure what people are capable of, and but there's this um, kind of strangeness to yeah. a lot of the things that feels very Hitchcock. Interesting thing about the Coen brothers, too, is they've, they themselves have kind of created this new genre where now people are comparing their types of films to the Coen brothers, the work yeah. of the Coen brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, one other film I would mention is kind of a recent one. I thought it was a terrific film. And again, so much of it is left to the imagination. Did you see the film 10 Cloverfield Lane? No, I did not. You need to see that. That's a <laughs> film that a lot of people compared to the works of, of Alfred Hitchcock because, again, it keeps you guessing this whole time. You have these three characters. That's it. These three characters that are in this bunker and this girl is blacked out in a car accident. And all she knows is that the person that brought her down there is her savior. He keeps saying, I saved you. You know, the world is ending up there, and the only place that's safe is down here in this bunker. So you're wondering the whole time, is this guy a creep, or is he really the savior that he is professing himself to be? So films like that that are in such tight spaces keep you guessing the whole time, wondering what people's true motives are, are really what makes some of Alfred Hitchcock's greatest films so great. Uh, One thing I thought we could do now is to each pick a film— And just go a little deeper into it, just kind of dissect it, whether it's by, you know, the costumes or the story or the visuals, the music. And it doesn't necessarily have to be one of our favorite Alfred Hitchcock films. In fact, the one I wanted to talk a little bit more about is not one of my favorite Alfred Hitchcock (laughs) films. But I'll let you start. I was actually going to talk about Vertigo, which is an excellent film. I don't know if it's... One of my favorites. Okay. But it is a lot of people's favorites. And there are some amazing both psychological, 
uh, visual story character things that are happening in there. But there's also some like kind of creepy things happening in there that make me feel a little unsettled when I watch it. So it might not be quite my favorite. Creepy in a different way that I don't like. Uh, (laughs) So Vertigo is really interesting because it's coming closer to the end of Hitchcock's career. It's um, in the 50s. And of course, Jimmy Stewart, who Hitchcock really loved to work with. Um, And Vertigo is like such this interesting story because there's this like quasi ghost possession sure. uh, storyline with the with the heroine and then you find out that it's all like this ruse spoiler alert um <laughs> but just the i think the crafting of vertigo is probably one of hitchcock's finest um you've also got a lot of experimentation in terms of visuals um the color is very very interesting you've got um these reds and greens that are pulling throughout the film. Uh, You've got that very interesting beginning. You've got the great music that's going on. I mean, I think the music adds, um, I don't know, 110% to Vertigo because it's so memorable. Yeah. Uh, Of all of the Alfred Hitchcock films, the Vertigo Vertigo album is one of two Alfred Hitchcock albums that I have. Or I should say Bernard Herrmann. Bernard Herrmann. Bernard Herrmann, who is a master of music. Absolutely. And it's both got the tense uh, suspense theme and then the very romantic theme for the heroine in that film. Mm -hmm. And they're both really, really great musical pieces. Um, And I think everyone focuses on sort of the first – I don't know if it's the first two-thirds of the movie where you've got the mystery and Jimmy Stewart is following um, the character who thinks she's Carlotta, this dead woman – um, and then you've got, you know, the great iconic uh, bell tower in the Spanish mission, which is amazing. You've got the the walk through the Redwood Forest and the really amazing scene that, you know, everybody always references where she touches the tree uh, outline and says, I was born here and I died here, and which, which is so haunting and great. Yeah. And the acting is amazing in that film. Uh, but I think sometimes we forget about the aftermath is that, you know, Jimmy Stewart kind of has a mental breakdown, and we always forget about that part. Sure. Jimmy Stewart has this mental breakdown. He's got to be recuperated. Um, He's got this really strange relationship with his friend, who's this um, artist, um, that she's in love with him, but he's And you really feel for her. And you really feel for her. She's a very sympathetic character. And then you've got the part that is very creepy to me, which is when Stewart finds this woman on the street and decides to remake her. Absolutely. Into... uh, the woman of his dreams who really is a dream because she doesn't actually exist. Right. And then the the weird twist on that is that that's essentially what Hitchcock does with a lot of his uh, female leads is Hitchcock actually takes them and literally remakes them into the sort of like idealized, blonde, notorious sort of Hitchcock yeah. character. So it's like there's a weird, creepy layering of... Jimmy Stewart's character is remaking this woman who actually turns out to be the actual woman he's in love with. So there's all kinds of weird (laughs) things going on there. But the idea that Jimmy Stewart is going through this process that Hitchcock literally does with almost all of his heroines. Yeah. Which is just kind of weird and unsettling at all kinds of levels. <laughs> so, But I, it's a great film. Mm-hmm. Um, and just – and so tragic at the end. So I have a couple of comments as well on Vertigo. But we'll come back to that because, spoiler alert, it's on my list of top five. <laughs> uh, but the film I want to talk about is The Wrong Man. I just watched this yesterday. And – I I will say I want to give this film credit because one thing it does really well is it tells a true story pretty accurately as far as I understand. 
And it really focuses more on the visuals than anything else, in my opinion, and trying to just tell a true-to-life story, so much so that Alfred Hitchcock doesn't do his typical cameo that he makes in most mm-hmm. of his other films, but uh, there's a little bit of a, uh, a message that he shares at the beginning. This Every word of this story happens exactly as it's presented here, uh, and he's shown in silhouette, so you don't even really see him all that well. But I think for me, this film was kind of a victim of the mindset of, I have no idea where this film is going, as well as, well, it's not what I was expecting to get from an Alfred Hitchcock movie, which was a little disappointing to me. But one thing I really respect about this film, in addition to just kind of the departure from what he's used to doing, he's trying to tell a story really as close as possible as it was. And I'm sure there's some uh, dramatization in there with characters and, and for story purposes. But it's very much a slice of life. They do a wonderful job of showing the effects of being wrongfully accused of a crime, the aftermath of that, and how it affects you even if you walk away with your freedom. There's psychological damage there. There's mental damage. There could, I mean, there's potentially damage to your career, which is one thing I I took issue with a little bit because, you know, while he's being, you know, while he's on trial for this, he still has his job as this musician at at a nightclub, which I didn't totally buy, but it's probably the truth. Um, But he does a great job of visuals and framing and moving the camera around in a way that really helps you sympathize with the character and and really get a very clear idea of what that character is feeling. There's a scene when he's in a jail and he's his head is swimming. He does not know what's going on. He's having to ask the cops what just happened. Like, explain to me what this judge just said. And he's put in the cell for the first time, has not been able to say one word to his wife over the phone. And so he is his mind is just swimming. And so the camera is kind of moving around in this circle. Great job on the visuals. Again, a score by Bernard Herrmann. It seems to be Alfred Hitchcock's go to guy. But I guess for me, it, I, I just I was expecting it to go a certain way and it didn't. It was just here's the story for what it's worth and it didn't really work for me but I have I have uh, high respect for him and why he made the choices he did with this film well we think of it sometimes as a departure because it's not visually the same as a lot of his other films especially we tend to think about sort of the late stuff like Sure. Uh, Psycho and Vertigo and North by Northwest and those things. And they have a little bit of a different visual feel. And I, and I think part of that is also camera technology is changing mm-hmm. over time um, as you move through Hitchcock's career. The Wrong Man is really interesting because it does deal with a lot of things that Hitchcock uh, is kind of obsessed with, Is if you want to say it that way, that they appear over and over. And wrongfully being accused is something that happens a lot in his films. And if you think about The Man Who Knew Too Much and North North by Northwest – um, this idea that there's a system that can work against you and Hitchcock's sure. idea of the maybe the legal or the police system. Um, but also socially, there's a lot of that happening in a lot of his films. And then it pairs nicely with one of his really early films, um, which I don't know why the title is escaping me right now, where a woman actually does kill someone and then she gets off free. Oh, I can't remember what that is. I want to say it's blackmail. 
Oh yeah, I, I haven't say seen that blackmail. one. Blackmail. Uh, huh. really not a lot of people have seen it because it is one of his early films, and it's this interesting film because it's in the transition between silent and sound film, and so you get like these weird elements that feel like a silent movie in the film, and then you've got elements that feel more like a regular movie. Yeah, um, and it's interesting. It's an early Hitchcock film before he comes to the U.S. It's made in England. Um, the protagonist is a female. Which is a little bit, I mean, he has a few female protagonists, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting because she actually is guilty, and we know that she's guilty. Yeah. And so the suspense is, well, should she be go to prison? And she feels guilty for killing this man, although she kind of justifies it because, well, it's justified because the man was going to rape her. Yeah. So the idea that she's guilty but it's self defense so she really probably shouldn't get convicted but the justice system isn't going to understand that and then right. her boyfriend is this police officer who gets involved in the case and doesn't want her to go to prison either and so even though she sort of gets off free in the end of the film you have this kind of like well i guess that's good feeling so it's very complicated brings up a lot of discussion points too yeah screen cleaning will be back in a moment If the names Gomez, Morticia, Fester, Wednesday, and Pugsley don't ring a bell, how about this? I never watched the 60s sitcom on which this film is based, but as an 8-year-old, I was introduced to the 1991 film The Addams Family, and I remember loving Wednesday and Pugsley's fake, blood-filled, limb-slicing sword fight. as well as MC Hammer's work on the soundtrack. But IMO, the sequel, is the better film. The fun starts off with a big announcement from the matriarch of the family. Gomez. Caramia. Marvelous news. I'm going to have a baby. Right now. But not everyone in the family is happy about the new arrival. Children, why do you hate the baby? We don't hate him. We just want to play with him. Especially his head. Children, do you think we love the baby more than we love you? Yes. Do you think that when a new baby arrives, one of the other children has to die? Yes. Well, that's just not true. (sighs) Not anymore. A common comedy formula involves placing people in settings where they clearly do not belong. In this case, that means placing dark and disturbed Wednesday and Pugsley in the care of the chipper counselors at Camp Chippewa. In the secondary but still compellingly written role of Pocahontas, guess who we have in mind? Our own little brunette outcast, Wednesday Adams. Not surprisingly, they're there against their will and at the behest of their new nanny, Debbie, who's really a serial killer known as the Black Widow, who plans to wed Uncle Fester, knock him off, and collect his massive inheritance. Oh, Fester, how much do you love me? With all my soul. Would you do anything for me? Anything. Would you die for me? Yes! Promise. Sure, the plot may sound a bit dark, but this film is really a family comedy with a touch of the macabre. Even Wednesday and Pugsley's attempts to get rid of their baby brother and Debbie's attempts to send Fester to an early grave are too much like bits out of a Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote cartoon to be taken seriously. 
It's the perfect film for those who'd rather laugh than shriek this Halloween. Okay, so what I want to do now is I want us to share our top five favorite Alfred Hitchcock movies. And I'll start with my number five. One criticism that I would have of a number of Alfred Hitchcock films is that he doesn't quite stick the ending of the movie. <laughs> and the number five pick for me is cer- – that's certainly true for me in this case. In the end, I chose Strangers on a Train. Which is an excellent film. It is an excellent film. And one thing that I love about this film, which is true, I think, of most of these films, is it has a great villain. Yes. A man, the actor that they chose to portray this villain is just a creepy guy. And it has one of the best premises of an Alfred Hitchcock movie that you can get, this idea of flip-flopping murders. Hey, you and I both have these people we love to get rid of, but just hypothetically, you know, <laughs> what if we were to switch, swap places and you murder the person I uh, want out of the way and I murder the person that uh, – well, you get the point. The, the flip-flopping of the murders. And uh, again, great villain. Genius premise. But for me, he doesn't really stick the landing. It's one of those endings that's kind of drawn out longer than it needs to be and kind of this silly chase on a carousel Carousel. that doesn't really work for me. But that's going to be my number five pick is Strangers on a Train, which has been mimicked in other movies. And I feel like I've seen in a lot of TV episodes them taking that premise because there's so many of those, you know, procedurals, uh, cop shows, and the solution is to... Oh, the solution was, oh, they did each other's. And I feel like I've seen that a lot. And that's definitely uh, an homage to Hitchcock. Yeah. So I'm going to choose a a Dark Horse number five film that people don't talk about just so that I can talk about it. Um, Also because it's a very, I mean, not that all of Hitchcock's movies aren't rewatchable, but I feel like it is a joy to rewatch The Trouble with Harry. That's what I've wanted to revisit. I've only seen it once many years ago. And so The Trouble with Harry is interesting because it's not a typical Hitchcock film. It didn't do well box office-wise. But I think the part of Hitchcock that I like um, with those quirky characters and that dark humor, I mean, and that's just what the film is all about. So The Trouble with Harry is that he's dead and a bunch of different people think that they killed him. (laughs) <laughs> and people aren't really sure who actually killed him. Yeah. So there's these hilarious sequences where the bar- body gets buried and reburied and unearthed and several times. Um, and you've got this whole uh, collection of very interesting characters. You've got this uh, artist living in this random rural community in Vermont, this woman who's moved there with her son to sort of escape her past. You've got this retired sea captain, I believe. is He's a sea captain. <laughs> and you've got this lonely old lady. Um, and then the sort of competent but not entirely trustworthy sheriff who's trying to solve this case. And so it's sort of like this comedy of darkness of uncovering and recovering this body. But then there's also like these interesting romantic pairings that happen in the film um, that just make it very fun. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to go back and watch and that. And it's, be- it's a gorgeous film because it's filmed, I think, on location in Vermont. And so it's very beautiful. Oh, yeah. Okay. So my number four, there, I mean, there are several Alfred Hitchcock films that are kind of the the bottle, you know, movie where it all takes place in one location. And I've only seen this movie once, but it had such an impact on me that I put it as my number four. And it's Dial M for Murder. It's I think I believe it's based on a play and it really does just take place in this apartment and that's it. And it's this this gentleman who finds out that his wife is being unfaithful to him 
and he would like her out of the way. And I, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, I think there's some money involved. Like he stands to gain her inheritance if if she dies. So he hires this man to off her. And let's just say, like any other Alfred Hitchcock movie, it does not go it does according not to go plan. Well. And so there's this uh, this police detective that's trying to solve this mystery the whole time. What I love about this film, again, the villain. He is very charming. He has this he has this smile on his face throughout the movie. <laughs> And he looks eerily similar to Jimmy Stewart. He's kind of like a British <laughs> Jimmy Stewart. This was a this is a play I would love to go see in the theater. Uh, just such, I mean, and you're you're just wondering the whole time. Oh boy, is he gonna is he gonna get away with this? And part of you doesn't mind if he does because he's he's kind of a charming guy. So my number four pick is Spellbound. Really? Yes, I really love Spellbound. It's it's one of my favorites. And um, part of it is because I love the weird dream sequence, of course, the very famous Salvador Dali yeah. dream sequence, which yeah. is amazing. And, and Ingrid Bergman is this very interesting character because she's like this not very typical uh, female protagonist. Mm-hmm. She's this uh, psychiatrist. And she has to solve the mystery of, one, who this guy is who shows up um, because nobody knows who he is. Um, he has amnesia. Uh, he might have murdered somebody, but yet she still falls and is, in love with him. Is he going to murder me? Yeah, is he going to murder me? But she still <laughs> falls in love with him, which yeah. is a very Alfred Hitchcock thing to happen. Yeah. Um, and then there's these this great chase scene, right? And the of course the film ends trying to go back to the place where the the murder has taken place. Yeah. Um, and the and I forget his name is, but Gregory Peck, who's yes. the hero, who's a great actor. Right. He's convicted of murder. But then then she but then she discovers that he's not. And she has to solve the murder on her own, which is quite interesting. And uh, fun fact, they filmed all the Snow Lodge stuff in Alta. Yeah. So that's nice um, for us here in Utah. Um, But, yeah, I just it's a great film. There's a lot of mystery. There's a lot of tension. Um, a lot of twists and turns, which is also very fun. I feel bad because I made the mistake of – I watched this recently. made the mistake of having it on in the background while I was trying to book a hotel on <laughs> on a website. And so I was – I kept thinking, what is going on? Because it does have a lot of strange visuals that – I really didn't uh, give it the treatment it deserved. So, I yeah, I regret that. My number three is Vertigo. And – the word I would use to describe this film, you already used to describe this film, is haunting. There's something – the first time I saw this, there was just something about this film that made me want to revisit it and that I just could not get out of my mind. And I think that, if done right, can be a very good quality in a film. Which is really interesting because the film itself is about obsession. Exactly. And then there's this interesting obsession that happens with us as we watch the film and want to rewatch it. One of the best scores in a film. In fact, it was used, a portion of the score was used again in the film The Artist. I don't know if you remember that, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a best picture of the year in a very climactic and uh, gripping scene in that film. And yeah, I think I, I share the same sentiments that you do on this film is the implications of his actions are kind of scary and unsettling yes. that you have this great actor that everybody loves and can identify with. And if it was a different actor, it probably would be ultra creepy. Exactly. It wouldn't have worked. And mm-hmm. I think that's why Jimmy Stewart in this role works so well is because 
after the film, and I think Alfred Hitchcock loved it. He loved it when his audience had this feeling of after the fact, thinking back and saying, hey, wait a minute. What about this? This couldn't have happened. He loved that. And I had that feeling after watching this film of that is the creepiest thing, trying to dress up this woman like a dead woman. And then there's like there's the the uh, discussion of necrophilia. And mm-hmm. it's just really kind of disturbing. <laughs> but uh, great camera shots that a lot of people copy, you know, with the mm-hmm. pan or uh, moving the camera back while zooming in at yeah. the same time. Spielberg does that. A lot of filmmakers do that. Now, my number two uh it's oh, it's so good. It's almost my number one, but it's Rear Window, also Jimmy Stewart. Again, a movie that takes place all in one setting in this apartment building. What's great about this film, aside from the various uh, suspenseful scenes, especially toward the end of the film, is Hitchcock essentially tells about a half a dozen different stories without any dialogue. Yes. You get everything you need to know about these various characters without hearing anything they say which is so difficult to pull off. I, I think another film that does it really well is uh, WALL-E, those first yes. 45 minutes of the film. <laughs> Very difficult uh, to pull off. He does it so well. And, of course, Jimmy Stewart, who's just somebody that we can all identify with, considered one of the greatest actors ever. Grace Kelly, who's who's not too difficult on the eyes either. <laughs> I, that's a little shallow. but uh, And she's also a terrific actress. My number one film uh, is Psycho. And I know a lot of people will take issue with the ending of the film. I don't. I think it's actually quite effective that they give you this little bit of a break to kind of take a breather and then give you one of the most disturbing endings of a film I've ever seen that works so effectively with voiceover and with visuals. Um, What I love about this film, like any good scary movie, for me, all of the scary parts in this film – are not the shocking, scary parts that uh, other people are were scared at when they first saw this film that made them jump out of their seats. It's the dialogue. It's the writing. It's the close. It's the psychological impact yes. rather than this, the, yes. the visual violence. The scene where she's escaping and she's imagining she's not she doesn't have this power where she's hearing what people are saying about her. She's imagining what people are probably saying about her back at home where she's stolen all this money. And then another great scene when she's sitting in Norman Bates's office with him sharing some sandwiches. And as she makes a suggestion to him, maybe, you know, with good intentions that maybe he should put his mother somewhere in an institution, Mm -hmm. he starts to kind of unwind and take offense to that. And you start to get a little glimpse of maybe he's got some issues here. (laughs) And again... Plus there's that really ominous bird in the background during that sequence. That's really great. Foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. Yes. And then also, again, very disturbing. It did a lot of things that were unconventional and not really that he was allowed to do at the time because of censorship, (laughs) but that he somehow got away with anyway, which we could do an entire episode or we could do an entire entire, interview on this. Yeah, you can. Um, But just very disturbing, this idea of a peeping Tom, which again, we won't get too much into that. So much can be talked about in this film. And I'm still scared to this day of this film. It's my number one scary movie of all time. Well, Psycho's a really interesting film in that it's made like right at the end of the censorship. I mean, the censorship had kind of been breaking down for a long time. And Psycho's this really interesting uh, piece for Hitchcock because it is almost straight up pure horror 
which he wasn't re- he which he didn't do before that. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of controversy that he was doing this more horror uh, oriented film. And people were like, well, why don't you go back and do those glamorous films like you did before? And Hitchcock, even though he was older and he could have retired, he wanted to keep pushing those boundaries and keep creating yeah. and thinking, what else can I do? Yeah. Right. So my number three is The Man Who Knew Too Much. Which one? The 1950s one with Jimmy Stewart. Okay. Um, yes, because it is a remake of an older one that he did when he was in England. I don't know. It's sound. I don't think the older one it is. It is, yeah. It's sound. Yeah. Um, and I just love this really interesting dynamic of the family. It is, I think, the only Hitchcock film where really the protagonist isn't just one person. It's the whole family. Yeah. And so I think that's really interesting, and I love this interesting dynamic in the family where uh, Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day have to go save their son. And so the stakes are really high, right, because it's their son and you feel for them. Um, And just like it's not mistaken identity, but the fact that people are trying to to coerce them and this is not their world. This world of espionage is totally out of their element because he's a doctor and she's a singer and and that just – Right. It's just great because we're thrust into this world that we don't know, which is a great Hitchcock sort of trope um, and trying to navigate this larger than life situation. How do you even manage um, in something like this? And they do. It's really interesting because they use what they know to solve this mystery and to actually like save someone's life. And and there's like this great scene where Doris Day comes into the concert hall and she screams and she's (laughs) and she throws off the assassin by just screaming and causing a panic in this concert was an amazing sequence. I've always wondered why he chose to remake this film, and I wonder if it's just so he could make it more accessible. Maybe. Hmm. Um, He could have wanted another opportunity to work with a great group of actors because there's some amazing actors in there. Maybe he wanted to go to Morocco because that's also exciting. Get a paid vacation. (laughs) Get a paid vacation because in later Hitchcock films, I feel like there's a lot more movement. They get to go to more locations, and I think part of that is Hitchcock is well established as a filmmaker, and now that he can, I mean, we know he's the master of doing things in one room. I mean, you talk about rope. Yeah. Um, but the idea that now he gets to use these interesting locations because he's got the budget yeah. and the power to do so, which is, is amazing and I love it. And I also love that it's like such an interesting concept that to save the sun at the end, sorry, spoiler alert, that uh, Doris Day has to sing, which is... Like, such a different kind of solution to a problem. And I thought that was really, really interesting. That she has to sing to save her son. My number two is also Rear Window. Yes! (laughs) I think Rear Window is just amazing on so many levels. Um, And it's this idea that we, along with Jimmy Stewart, are sort of immobilized, right? Mm -hmm. The idea of being powerless in a situation that really requires us to have some more movement in our lives. The use of our legs. Yeah. Right? And so it's really, I just love this, like, well, we are powerless. And even though we're in this powerless position, what can we do? Mm-hmm. And plus, I love sort of the play on voyeurism, which is such a a more common thing now that we think about as voyeurism and surveillance and watching. Again, and if it wasn't Jimmy Stewart, we'd probably be creeped out. Like, who is this creepy guy watching yeah. his neighbors? Yeah. But then again, how many of us look out the window and like watch our neighbors? Like, we do that all the time. Let's be people, honest. People watching is what we call. We people don't call watching, it peeping right. Tom. It's not. We're not people. It's it's people watching, right? Yeah. Um, and there's such great tension in Ruindo too because of the helplessness, right? Yes. When Grace Kelly goes over to the apartment. And is looking for things. 
right? There's just like so much tension because you like can't do anything. Again, you don't hear any of that sound because yeah. it's all from his perspective. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, so it's good. Am- it's amazing. Yes. And the falling out of the window at mm-hmm. the end is amazing, right? And the irony of breaking his other leg, which is yes. fantastic. <laughs> um, and then my number one is North by Northwest. Yeah. I am a huge Cary Grant fan, so that also is part of it. And Cary Grant did lots of films with Alfred Hitchcock. And I think it's really interesting because Cary Grant was kind of interested in retiring before he even did To Catch a Thief with Hitchcock, which was a couple years before North by Northwest. And I'm so glad that he didn't retire because I think North by Northwest is Cary Grant's best film and Alfred Hitchcock's best film. Wow. Um, There's so many amazing scenes in North by Northwest um, and the film itself is well executed but just there's so many memorable iconic mm-hmm. amazing and then once again Albert Hitchcock using locations locations are almost another character in North by Northwest um, from the train there's so much interesting things happening on trains in North by Northwest yeah but also the there's this amazing sequence um, uh, when he goes to this big house Right, and they're interrogating him, and then he goes back to the house, and oh, we don't know what's happening. This house has been closed for how many months? And so there's like this great, interesting use of sets and locations, and of course the famous scene where he's like driving and almost falling off the cliff, which is an amazing yes. sequence to film. Um, and then of course there's the iconic stuff at the end where um, there's the shooting scene inside of the visitor center and. Uh, uh, Mount Rushmore where they go. And, of course, mm-hmm. the iconic scene at the end where they're racing across Mount Rushmore. I mean, it doesn't get any better with Martin than— Martin Landau? Yes, with Martin Landau as a villain who's an amazing villain in this film. But just mistaken identity, lots of twists and turns, um, the crop duster scene. I mean, that That's, is— That's, yeah, so, that is so one iconic. of the best scenes. But I, I absolutely love the idea of, well, what would it be like to have a chase scene on Mount Rushmore? And I just think that is— a, like an amazing idea one and two like incredibly well executed and adds so much to the typical chase scene yeah in a film well Kimball we've really appreciated your time here we've I've had a great time speaking with you about the career of Alfred Hitchcock and again this is something that people teach courses on this is something that people will spend people two have devoted hours... their whole careers to studying yes. Hitchcock and as we shared people will make a documentary based on one scene of one of his films <laughs> so it's crazy there's a reason why people are still talking about him today people are still making movies about him and people are still very heavily influenced by him I wish that some of the horror and suspense movies of today would borrow a little bit more from him because they do tend to go a little bit more for the quick buck and the cheap thrill of the jump scares and all that but uh, if you want a good scare just go back and watch the good old films of Alfred Hitchcock and there are so many that we could have talked about that we didn't you need a good scare that stays with you yes yes oh that's a great way to put it when we return we're going to do a little panning for good here on screen cleaning Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. As you know, each and every episode, we like to end the show with our Panning for Good segment. 
before we get to that, though, I did want to give Cole an opportunity. Since we've been talking about Alfred Hitchcock on the show, I had an opportunity to share my top five of his movies and so did our guest. And now I wanted to hear what Cole's top five Hitchcock films are. I think I'm going to bring a couple more movies to the plate. So okay. we've heard five, three different top five lists. Okay. Um, start at five, work to one, right? So mm-hmm. I have to include The Birds. You in my to. top five list okay. because it, dis- it has absolutely no dialogue. I watched it for the first time when I was in ninth grade and just the the script is not good. It's a cheesy <laughs> 60s movie. And it, to think that Alfred Hitchcock did this after so many really, really great movies is really weird. But it's just a fun horror movie and it's got some good practical effects. And it's revered the by birds, a lot of people. It's fun. I, he did more serious things and those are higher up on my list. But I like watching the birds. Okay, so what's, number, what's number four? Right. The f- four is an earlier one. It's Notorious. Okay, um, I have not seen that it's one. It's a spy drama with mm-hmm. Harry Grant. So definitely Hitchcocky. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three for me is Rear Window. Yes. Which is very good. Number yes. two is North by Northwest. Okay. And then number one is definitely Psycho. You got it right, Cole. Ding, 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 ding. You got the last one right for sure. That's the important one. <laughs> There's good in them there hills. On Panning for Good, we try to highlight a career, a movie, a performer, something that is extra noteworthy that we like to highlight on the program. And today, I want to tell you about something that relates to one of the films we discussed last week, the Twilight Zone movie. Actually, it's called Twilight Zone the movie. This would be the Twilight Zone radio dramas. Ooh, imagine if you will. Radio dramas that are a feast for the senses. Yes, these are so entertaining. They get celebrity guests to come in and uh, portray the characters in these famous Twilight Zone episodes for radio. I know there are a lot of radio stations around the country that will play them. You can listen to them for free on the radio, or you can download the app and I think buy them for like a buck an episode. But it's super worth it. And again, it, it... it harkens harks back to a, a time when things were simpler and our entertainment came from the radio. So if you want a spooky way to enjoy Halloween, but you don't want to have to watch something, turn on the Twilight Zone radio dramas. You will not regret it. I can guarantee you that. That's going to do it for this episode of Screen Cleaning. Until next Friday, 